I'm Brett Tomlinson, and this is the Princeton Alumni Weekly's Q&A podcast. This is our 11th episode, and so far we've featured several authors, alumni who've written about immigration, about math, about philosophy in the midlife crisis. Uh, Jacob Sager Weinstein is the first in our series who's written about a giant pig in a bathing suit who lives in the secret underground rivers of London. Jacob, a 1994 Princeton grad, is an author of children's books, including Hyacinth and the Secrets Beneath, an adventure story that was released last year and came to paper back in April. The second book in the series, Hyacinth and the Stone Thief, is due out May 15th, and he is on the line with us from London. Jacob, uh, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. Great to talk to you. So uh, to begin, could you tell me a a bit about your career path? I I know some bits and pieces from your Princeton days that you were a a founding member of of Quipfire, the improv comedy troupe, and you wrote for the Triangle Club as well, majored in English. Uh, Did those experiences uh, shape your route uh, after college? Uh, Yeah, they did. I I would say, and and I'm going to wade into controversy right off the bat, uh, of those things, the one that was maybe the least practical use in becoming a writer was the English degree, uh, just because the the way you approach writing from a critical perspective is, I think, different from the way you approach it when you're, when you're writing the piece. Um, but I found that being in Quipfire and writing for Triangle, just the experience of writing something or improvising something and seeing how an audience reacts gives you, it's just an amazing lesson in what is effective writing and what is not. And what did you want to do after college? I mean, did you have a sense of, of what types of things you wanted to write? Uh, well, I did know I wanted to be a writer. Oh, I should also mention uh, that in addition to, to majoring in English, I got a certificate in the creative writing program. Um, and that, I found, was extremely useful. I, I studied with uh, Tony Morrison, Mary Morris, Russell Banks, and that sort of that taught me a huge amount about how to, how to think like a writer. Um, I, I wasn't entirely sure what kind of writing I wanted to do. Uh, I just knew I wanted to be a writer. So after I graduated, I tried some different things. I spent a year working for a Washingtonian magazine in Washington, D.C., uh, and concluded from that that I did not want to be a journalist. Just just much more fun to make stuff up than to research it. And they, they tend to frown on making stuff up in journalism. <laughs> um, so uh, uh, then I thought I wanted to be a, a TV sitcom writer. Uh, I moved to Los Angeles. Uh, I wrote a couple of spec scripts uh, for various sitcoms with uh, my fellow Quipfire and Triangle alum, Rob Kuttner, class of 94. Um, eventually, I decided I did not want to be a sitcom writer. Uh, I did end up being a staff writer on a comedy variety show on HBO called Dennis Miller Live. Uh, I thought for a long time that what I wanted to do was screenplays and movies, and did that and made some headway and, and sold some scripts, but that never get made. Uh, and sort of eventually around the time my kids were born is when I finally decided that, that children's writing was what I wanted to pursue. So it's been, it's been sort of a long and roundabout path. And, and there is, I imagine, quite a difference in tone when you're writing a joke for Dennis Miller or writing a screenplay or writing a, a chapter book for, for a nine or 10 year old. Um, what was appealing to you about the idea of, uh, 
writing children's books and and what were sort of the the challenges of, of breaking into it uh, well it's interesting it, and it's certainly for, for those who who saw the Dennis Miller show it was very adult there was a lot of swear word there was sexual contents um, but actually I was always that didn't come naturally to me. And actually, I, I had to make an effort to sort of write in that more adult voice. So with hindsight, I may have, maybe was destined for children's books all along. Um, I think the there's obviously a difference in the kinds of things you can cover. Um, but, you know, I, I skipped over an important step, which is uh, I wrote three books with Matthew David Prozik, who is one of the founders of Cripfire, um, that we thought were for adults or maybe very sophisticated college students. And uh, I kept meeting 10-year-olds who liked them. <laughs> and so I sort of, I sometimes describe myself as an accidental children's book writer. And what I concluded from that is that I could I could write at the very top of my intelligence and ability, and it would be just about right for a 10-year-old. And, and I, I don't know and if that those, says something. That, those books were the, uh, uh, I think there was one about a guide for pirates and one about superheroes or something like that? That is exactly right. It was the government manual for new wizards, the government manual for new pirates, and the government manual for new superheroes. Uh, and and the fact that I thought those were grown-up books again <laughs> may tell you about something about how my how I think and, and how my interests are. So you had the the kind of the sense of the audience, maybe inadvertently, um, you had some experience writing, but it's not the type of thing that that you can just kind of break into easily. I, I gather it's 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 a difficult process to find a, a publisher and 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 to kind of get that first break. What what was it like for for you? I gather it, it, it took some time. Yeah, it was a, it was a very hard process, and I I have to admit I was rather arrogant, as I think a lot of writers are when they first contemplate children's books. So the books that I wrote with Matthew, I think were on the order of twenty thousand words. Um, you know, a picture book. Uh, is on the order of 500 words. So I sort of figured, I, I can write a picture book a week. Um, but it, it turned out, uh, especially with picture books, but also with middle grade novels, which Hyacinth is, um, that the, the fewer words you have to work with, the more each word counts. So I started writing, uh, I guess I started seriously pursuing children's books around 2008, uh, 2007, and my first children's book just came out last year. So it was sort of almost a decade, really, of writing and rewriting. Um, and I, I was working on Hyacinth sort of simultaneously with, with various picture books. And I'd work on a picture book for a while. I'd put it aside. I'd work on Hyacinth. I'd put that aside. I'd come back. Um, I did a, just constantly had to rewrite Hyacinth and would send it off and get rejected and try to learn from the rejection and rewrite it again. Um, it was a very long and uh, frequently discouraging process. And and what kept you going through all that uh, rejection and rewriting and and that uh, process? Gosh, I I think at the beginning it was the arrogant belief that it was going to be fa a fairly easy and brief process. Uh, and then as it kept going, I had just become so attached to this world I had created. I, I, I should maybe explain that Hyacinth, and I think you mentioned this, it's set in sort of a magical version of London. The, the conceit of it is that the everything 
that the history books tell you about London's history is a cover story for this secret magical history that has existed. And I had worked out an extensive backstory and the rules of this world and centuries of history. And I just, it's, it was, I guess, the, the Vietnam syndrome in literary form where you just get committed to something, you put so much effort into it, you really, it just drives you forward to keep going. Um, but uh, I, I will be honest that, that towards the end, I had really come to feel that I probably was not going to get published and that all this effort was going to be for naught. And I was trying to figure out what else I could do with my life. And I, I literally couldn't think of anything else I was especially qualified for. Um, and it was I say about two or three months into that real despair that I got an agent for the book and very quickly sold it. Um, so uh, I, I, you know, if I had, if I had figured out something I was qualified for, I might have switched over to it sooner. <laughs> In the current landscape for authors, is there pressure to write within certain boundaries, certain genres, or, or is is it a space that rewards? originality in, in your experience? Uh, I think I think whether you get that pressure, I think that pressure is often self-inflicted. Um, and I would encourage anybody who's listening to this, who is interested in writing, to resist putting that pressure on themselves as much as possible. Um, you know, thinking about it, something else that kept me going on this book was the feeling that this was a book that only I could write. Um, I've always been fascinated by quirky bits of history I've always been fascinated by fantasy stories and by conspiracy theories, and I really love the city of London. And so I feel like this book came out of a combination of things. Obviously, lots of people feel each of those individual things, but the specific recipe of that combination of things in that proportion was really, really me and an expression of me. And I think had I been trying to write another Harry Potter or another Percy Jackson, I don't think it ever would have would have worked. I think it not only not only would I not have sold it, I'm not sure I would have had sort of the passion and the cussedness to keep going with it over the years that it took. And as I said at the top, you're you're based in London and and it is a, a huge part of the the first book. I, I'm not sure is it is the second one also set in London? That's right, absolutely. All all three books in the trilogy are very London centric. And and what is it about London the the kind of quirks of it? that appealed to you and and do you think uh you know a, a an english uh native would have uh had the same perception of of the city uh or well not perception but uh the same ability to kind of reimagine it as a as a uh as an american would uh, i i think you've put your finger on something and i i think that that definitely the answer to that second question is no. That uh, obviously you can hear from my my voice and my accent. I am not a native Briton. Um, my wife and I moved here just about 15 years ago, uh, and I do think that if you grow up someplace, if you live there all your life, you take its oddities and quirks for granted. So there were a lot of things that I started noticing when I moved here, uh, from little things like the way the faucets work here, uh, to to bigger things like just the extent of the, the history here. Um, you know, I still remember shortly after we arrived, we went to a concert in a church and they were doing renovations in the church and there's just a big piece of lumber from somewhere in the church lying in the lobby of the church. And on it was a date that was 1725, I think. And I just remember thinking, this piece of wood is older than my country and nobody was paying any attention to it. It's just 
practically scrap. I mean, I'm sure they were going to put it back, but there was no, nobody seemed impressed at this ancient piece of wood just sitting in the middle of the lobby. Um, and as somebody who I grew up in Washington, D.C., which is relatively historic, but, you know, I spent seven years of my life in Los Angeles, where a historic building dates back to 1955. So the vastness of the history here ends up being just this fantastic playing field, this fantastic thing to, to toy with if you are making up a secret magical history. You mentioned you're also a, a parent. Uh, did your kids inspire the, the work that you've done? Uh, they did indirectly. Um, I started really getting serious about it just at the time my, my daughter, my first child, was born. And, you know, a lot of people gave us books as gifts for her, uh, and both picture books and kids' books. And, of course, when she was born, she wasn't old enough to read those. But, but I would read them, and I would remember just how much I loved all the books I read as a kid. Um, and I was sort of struck anew by how, how incredibly well-written and creative so many of them were. So that was a huge inspiration in, in getting me to really focus on, on intentional children's books. Um, in terms of them more directly inspiring me, I, I try to pay attention to the things they like and that are important to them in the books they read. And that, I think, helps me keep my focus on what, what kids are passionate about reading. Um, but I... I, but an equal part of that, I think, is also my own memories of, of how I felt uh, when I was a kid and, and what I love to read and, and hear about. Well, tell me a bit about that. I mean, what, what, was, uh, what, what was your reading story like? What, what, what authors did you like? What, what uh, books did you reread? And, and uh, what, what things made an impression on you when you were a, a young reader? Uh, well, the, the Narnia books were a huge favorite of mine. Uh, and actually, the, the Narnia books are, are responsible for me actually learning how to read. Uh, my, my mom used to read to me at bedtime. But one night, I don't know if she was out or sick, so my dad took over. And he thought it would be funny to put in like my name instead of Aslan and my brother's name instead of Peter. And I had no idea what was happening in the book because all the character names were wrong. And I realized you cannot depend on grownups to read to you. You have to do it for yourself. So that I like that sort of is what me actually got me to buckle down and learn to read. Um, but so yeah, so I love the Narnia books. Um, I mostly loved escapism. So uh, the Narnia books, uh, a fantasy author, Lloyd Alexander, who is not quite as appreciated as much as he should be, but he's amazing. Um, uh, I, I loved um, Beverly Cleary. She was sort of the one realistic author I liked. Um, I'm just blanking. There's a wonderful, funny author who uh, who wrote westerns a lot. Uh, Sid Fleischman. Sid Fleischman, Mr. Magic and Company, Me and the Man on the Moon-Eyed Horse. He was one of my favorites growing up. I, I've read a little bit a little bit about your method uh, of writing, in which you you mentioned creating a playlist for each project. Do you, do you still do that? I, I do, absolutely. Um, and actually, one of the ways when I was trying to figure out uh, when I, so when when uh, I sold Hyacinth and the publisher was sort of sending me a sheet for publicity purposes, asked me to say when I started working on the book, uh, various things, one of the ways I was able to track when I started on it was to look in iTunes and see when I added the first song to the playlist for this novel. Um, and I should explain that that the the idea behind that is that for each project I work on, I create a specific playlist um, of songs 
that are either explicitly or thematically or in some way related to the book, I listen to the same song each time I sit down for a writing session, and after that it's a randomized list. And it becomes this Pavlovian thing where as soon as I hear that song, I'm immediately in the right frame of mind to start working on the book. Um, the downside, of course, is that it then ruins that song for me forever, that I can never <laughs> listen to it without feeling guilty that I'm not, not working on the book. Well, you can always turn to the, uh, to the hardcover copy and say, okay, that one's done. I can, I can re-listen yes. to that song. What's, Absolutely. What's, what's on your uh, playlist now, and, and what's the corresponding uh, project? I just finished working on a book for younger children, and I'm going to be a bit vague about it because I just sent it off to my agent, and I don't know if anything will happen with it. Um, but it's kind of a science fiction-y uh, sort of a goofy science fiction-y story. Uh, so the Incredibles uh, soundtrack is on there because that's great sort of action-y, science fiction-y music. Um, there are, it's about a robot. So there's a bunch of robot theme songs. Uh, there's a great They Might Be Giant song, The Robot Parade, that's on there. Uh-huh. Uh, and for, for Hyacinth and The Secrets Beneath, that one was a huge amount of mostly London-themed music, as you'd expect. And when you're writing, do you have any tricks or tips or things that, that kind of help you break through when you hit a rough patch or, or kind of, uh, I don't want to use the B word, but uh, <laughs> when, when you're not, not quite uh, feeling the, the flow of the, uh, of the piece? So I would say there are two things. Um, and one of them is sort of ironic, given that I stopped doing journalism because I didn't want to do research. But it turns out that research is really useful in fiction as well. Um, so for, for something like Hyacinth, because it was so much based on this idea of a secret magical history, I was able to just take a lot of London's actual history and just give it these little twists to make it more magical. Um, so I have uh, God knows how many megabytes of, of stored research. Um, I read huge, I'm, sort of, I'm sitting in my office right now, and I'm looking over at my shelf of London history books, and I've got multiple shelves sort of bulging with books about London history. And as I read them, anything that struck me as weird or contradictory or mysterious, I would make a note of and, and eventually try to work that into the story. Um, so clearly that's less useful if you aren't writing this specific kind of book. But I would say almost anything you are writing you probably can deepen the book and inspire yourself by researching the reality behind that. So if you're writing a real-world book about a certain time and place, you can research that time and place. If it's a fantasy book and you can think of some sort of model or analog to your work, then research from that can be immensely useful. Um, So that's the one thing. The other thing, which is maybe more broadly applicable, is I think a lot of times, I will say the B word, a lot of times writer's block comes from perfectionism, and it comes from the fact that that when an idea is in your head, it's beautiful and pristine, and as soon as it's on paper, you see its limitations, you realize how how obvious or unoriginal, or you convince yourself that it's obvious or unoriginal. Um, So I have learned to just embrace the crappiness of my first drafts. Uh, I just know from experience that the first draft of anything is probably going to be horrible, um, and that, that you can always revise a bad first draft, uh, but you can't revise a blank page. So I found that just forcing myself to get something on the page, even if I write a thousand words and I results in one sentence that I can eventually keep, 
that's one sentence more than I would have if I just didn't write anything down. That's, uh, I think that's very sound advice. Um, some of our listeners are, are younger alums who are you know, trying to figure out their career path, trying to figure out what, uh, what work suits them. Um, what advice would you have for them on, on kind of finding your way as, as a writer, not just of, of children's books, but, but overall? Uh, well, I would say a few things. I would say one thing that, that is maybe advice I would give in particular to Princeton graduates or graduates of other elite universities is that um, you will see just in your classmates' Facebook pages and uh, in the class notes section and also about the conversation, you will see a lot about your classmates' successes and you will you won't see things about their failures because people understandably are reluctant to talk about that publicly but you will know all of your own failures intimately um, and by the way if i sounded a bit negative in the first half of this podcast sort of talking about some of the failures and the frustrations along the way it's very deliberate because i feel people are not not open enough about that and it becomes easy to feel that you are the only one who's struggling or not where you want to be so i would just say that whatever path you choose whether you're being a writer or an investment banker or whatever it is, you should be kind to yourself and you should recognize that that failing at things is not a sign of failure, it's a sign of taking risks. Um, And that is ultimately much more worthwhile, I think, than playing it safe. Um, The other advice I'd give is that I feel like I've, I've always chosen to do the things that I love and am most passionate about. And that is a very risky thing and has led to to failures and frustrations, um, but it has been tremendously worth it. And I have absolutely no regrets about that. And so I would say that that as big a risk as it might seem to follow your passions, I would just encourage you to do that, whatever that passion is, whether it's it's fiction writing or nonfiction or something entirely different. Well, Jacob, thank you so much for, for joining me. This has been great. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for talking. Jacob Sager Weinstein is the author of most recently Hyacinth and the Stone Thief, which is due out May 15th. <laughs>